If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. That's it? That's all we get on an Easter weekend? He's MIA. I don't know. Uh, try, it's spring is in the air. Uh, enough said. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board spinning the Donna Summer. And the reason being because Donna Summer is 124. I can't even read my own writing, man. Let's go with 124. <laughs> on uh, Rolling Stone's top 200 singers of all time. There you go. And we're going to play a different one every single hour just to get this party started. Huh? Huh? The judges accept that? Everybody? There they go. All right. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, another jam-packed show. Make sure you're here two hours from now when we play Hammerhead Trivia and another chance for you to win on Hamilton's favorite game show as we test your knowledge of this great city. No hints today. Although I think I did give a hint yesterday, and then nobody got it. But we'll leave it at that. All right. Uh, uh, and actually, there's not much going on. It's a holiday weekend. It's got that feel in the air. Uh, a lot of rain, a lot of, boy, areas around us, uh, north of the uh, of us, and then out east towards uh, Ottawa and Quebec. They got nailed with uh, uh, freezing rain and a lot of wind yesterday over the course of that storm. And everything uh, pretty much saturated as we got uh, just a lot of rain here. But again, uh, over the course of, uh, of the uh, last 48 hours, say, uh, the ground's pretty swollen. So be aware of that uh, around creeks, waterways, that sort of thing. It is spring and, um, you know, things are clogged up, things are flowing, lots of water out there. So be mindful of that. All right. Uh, a jam-packed show coming up as always. Boy, frightening news uh, coming up in regard, or coming out rather in regard to uh, uh, guns in this city and, and what we've been uh, Hamilton police have been doing over the last uh, little while and just the huge uptake in, uh, in in what they've discovered and in, in, in the guns they've they pulled off the streets. And again, uh, I think the thing that stands out when you hear and of course, the news department will have more on this throughout the course of the afternoon. But I think what stands out in all of this is, um, you know, the report that Dave was playing that these things are just getting picked up in, in random traffic stops. So, uh, you know, I mean, not not following great investigation, not following a great crime. They're just so prevalent that it, it's it's everywhere. So uh, thank goodness the frontline officer is uh, aware of this and, and, and keeping eyes out for it. But it's it's amazing. Uh, again, the the uptick in, in just everything in the last uh, little while in a post pandemic world. And the interesting other interesting issue I heard uh, out of all of this is majority of the guns I'm seeing in the high 80s. They're smuggled guns. They're not, you know, they're coming in through the Canada-U.S. border. And that's been an ongoing issue. And yet we never really seem to talk about projects that are going on uh, along the border of the of Canada and the United States. Instead, all we hear about is hunters that are getting their rifles banned. And again, I don't have a gun in the game here. I'm not, you know, uh, you know, it's not my, it's, it's just not my thing. But, you know, I grew up with cousins who lived on farms and it was a regular part of life. 
Uh, and again, at the end of the day, I think we spend a lot of time uh, in the weeds trying to gain politics and, and, and make everybody feel that they're really secure. But as you go outside, in fact, that's not the case. So uh, again, it seems odd that we spend so much time uh, ranting and raving about gun control and, and what's going on uh, with the people and the guns here, yet we don't seem to address the problem, which is, you know, you're hearing any from anywhere from 80 to 90 percent of the guns that are used in crimes are coming across the border. So, uh, you know, it, it's like we're looking the other way and 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 things are going on. So it, it, it's bizarre. Uh, and you would think that this would at least deserve the majority of the attention. And this is another thing to think about whenever we talk about guns. What do we talk about? It's banning this, banning this, banning that, banning. Well, they're all, a lot of them are already banned. And at the end of the day, that's not the problem. So instead of focusing on things that don't matter, here we go again, um, you know, focus on the problem, which is the border between uh, Ontario and New York and all the way along, for that matter. Right through Quebec, New York State, uh, and 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 on from there. So, um, you know, it's odd that we're following for, you know, sort of flashcard politics and look over here, something shiny, and 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 not really addressing the problem, which seems to be the case in a lot of issues, uh, a lot of issues that we've discovered in a post-pandemic world. Uh, anyway, that being said, I, you know, I didn't want to spend too much time on it. We'll talk about it a little later on and, and get the news perspective and updates obviously, but we are heading into an Easter weekend, so we'll try to keep it a little lighthearted. And again, it's the Thursday edition of an All Request Friday, so uh, if you want to hear 30 seconds of your favorite, give Will a call. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, are there, no, I'm not going to ask for Easter songs, because either they'll be really, really slow and depressing, or uh, it'll be the uh, bunny hop or something like that. So I'll let you pick. So I can't play the, the theme from Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments? (laughs) <laughs> I, I need to know this guy. Yeah. And you know what? Only you would be able to find that habit or even know what it is. <laughs> that is what Will is all about, man. I've never seen a guy with such an eclectic music taste. But yeah, so it, there's maybe that. Maybe there's the thing. Challenge Will on a little game of uh, of All Request uh, Friday on a Thursday, heading into an Easter weekend. All right, what else we got? Uh, coming up, what do, uh, dental plan rolling out. What does it mean for hygienists? You know, there's issues with doctors. Do we have enough dentists? Do we have enough hygienists? and such to go around. We're going to have uh, that conversation and make sure your smile's good as you head into the Easter weekend. Uh, uh, and also, uh, the Loblaw CEO, Galen we- uh, Weston. Holy smokes, is this guy public enemy number one during everything we're going through? And you know, I'm a capitalist, but sheesh, a 55% raise? Man, I hope the frontline employees are getting that. Uh, well, listen to me. Listen to me. Uh, we'll have that discussion coming up a little later on. All right. Uh, uh, and great. Uh, you know, he, here we go again, sort of like an, another first, if you want to put it that way, because uh, last Easter, well, things were better. But, you know, it, it seems to be getting better in, in the, the global pandemic slowly behind us. Uh, that being said, still around us in some form is obviously COVID-19. We have to be cautious of that. Uh, however, a lot of people getting back into the swing, including getting back to their doctors, getting back to the dentist. And 
and cleanings and, and fillings and all that sort of stuff that may have been neglected during uh, the course of a global pandemic. Also, with changes to uh, funds going out for dental health, uh, this can also or is hoping to put a, uh, a bit more pressure in a good way on, on the dental system as, as hopefully more and more people get to the door. Uh, are we ready for that? Let's bring in Sylvie Martel, uh, Director of Dental Hygiene Practice with the Canadian Dental Hygienist Association. And with us now, Sylvie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you for I, having me. I floss today. Did you? <laughs> yes. Just want to, you know. Good for you. I you're, just you're you know, part of the small, a small percentage of the population that do it <laughs> daily. <laughs> yeah. Well, I knew I was coming on, and I and I figured somehow you could tell, even if you're not even seeing me. Somehow you guys can always tell if we're not doing it right. All right. So, um, what has it been like for uh, for your uh, industry and dental and just dentistry in general coming out of the pandemic? Obviously, there was lots of confusion. I remember going to the dentist over the uh, the pandemic and the poor hygienist man, as well as with all the gear, it looked like she was wrapped in saran wrap. Uh, it was just, you, you know, you had to feel for everyone that was working so hard to keep us uh, safe. But coming out, what are you seeing? And with the new dental uh, rollout and such, are you are you expecting more people? Are more people coming in the door? Most definitely, Scott. Because if you look at uh, this new federal investment, we are looking at probably three Canadians out of ten do not have any type of dental coverage, whether or not it's employee-sponsored dental plan or uh, anything that would be provincially driven. So we are looking at an influx of patients coming in for dentistry and dental hygiene. Absolutely. And because they haven't been seen or treated for probably a very long time, we're also expecting a surge in terms of the complexity of treatment that will need to be done. But, you know, this is great that uh, this new federal investment will actually service so many people that actually need care and are not seeking it because their biggest barrier is financial. Yeah. How much of a surge are you planning for? Can you tell? You know what? Absolutely not. We don't have a crystal ball. We know that there will definitely be an an influx of of patients, but how many only... No one can tell. I mean, it's it's going to be there. If we're looking at the Canada Dental Benefit that was uh, started in uh, December of this year for children under 12 years old, uh, already we have 250 child that have benefited from the, the interim benefit. So, you know, and that's just for the 12 and under. The phase two of the program will be for seniors, people with disability and children under 18 coming up by the, the end of this year. So um, it's very hard to, to assess. I think what it's going to also uh, facilitate is, is access at least to care. And, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to, to see them all and, um, the other thing that's going to facilitate is probably more services rendered in rural and uh, remote communities, because now there'll they'll be a program for them to pay for their, their costs of dental and dental hygiene care. Is there any way to measure at this point, Sylvie, um, um, how many are actually taking advantage of it? Can you tell if they're using it for dentistry? Because some of the um, criticism early on or, or concern was that it was hard to tell whether they were actually using it to go to the dentist or not. 
Yeah, very good point. You know, we get that question often. Unfortunately, we don't know. Um, they do, when they register, they have to put down where they're going to visit, whether or not they're going to visit right. a dental hygienist directly or a dentist. But at this point in time, we, we don't know how many people have used portion of or, or the entire allocation towards dental care. So um, have you started to see increases now? But then again, you know, a lot of that's probably post-pandemic as well. Are there any signs, I guess, again, too early to tell um, if this and, and, and how successful it is in actually delivering this to the patients? When will we know? I guess a year or so from now? Oh, I think it's going to be longer than that. And the government is looking at putting in place some sort of surveillance because really what we need to see is that, so if we pay for treatment, do we see a change in, in the burden of disease? Is there less yeah. cavities? Is there less gingivitis out there? Because they are now, they now have access to, to the dental program. Yeah. So I, I would say that we're not looking at evaluating success until at least probably three years down the road. And what about shortage of hygienists, shortage of dentists? Uh, we know certainly in the healthcare industry what they're going through. What's the situation with hygienists in particular and this dent uh, dentistry in general as far as employees and, and enough people to handle all of this? I think post-COVID, uh, dentistry and dental hygiene are back to, to the type of activities that they were doing pre-pandemic. In terms of job shortages, um, I think what happened, especially for dental hygiene, as we are a female dominant profession, we're over 98% female, and we've got hit um, very hard during COVID because, as you know, kids were at home, homeschooled, yeah. so sometimes they ended up having to cut their week short and work probably part-time instead of full-time because they had to take care of you know, aging parents or kids. So what we're seeing, and we are conducting a uh, health uh, workforce survey uh, next month, and we'll know a little bit more about where we're at with that, but we're the sixth largest uh, healthcare profession in Canada. So there's over 31,000 dental hygienists uh, versus about 26,000 dentists. So there is definitely, you know, a lot of people out there that are gonna be able to service Canadians. I think this new federal program will also create some opportunities for even dental hygienists opening up their own mobile businesses because now that since they've been named in the legislation and they can provide directly dental hygiene services to patients and then be reimbursed for the services that they render, I think that we're going to see a, an influx of mobile services. So dental hygienists will go and dentists will go directly where the clients are and service them right there, whether it's at home, whether it's in a long-term care facilities, or in schools. Um, so I think we'll see we'll see a major tr trend changing here in terms of how dental and dental hygiene care is delivered. Sylvie Martel with us, Director of Dental Hygiene Practice with the Canadian Dental Hygienist Association, ready for you. Sylvie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. Same to you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Last week, The Telegraph reported that Agatha Christie's novels are being sanitized for release. HarperCollins, the publisher, is removing references to physique, uh, physique race, ethnicis, uh, ethnicity as well. And Bruce Party uh, recently wrote an opinion piece on this and uh, is with us now. Bruce Party, professor at Queen's University, also executive director of Rights Probe, and is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thanks, Scott. Nice to be with you. 
Uh, is it hard to have an opinion on this without being labeled in some way? Uh, how do you balance this? Well, first question is, what are you trying to balance? Uh, this is just a question of whether or not it is okay for us to read books that were written and published in the past in their original form. And we've gotten to the point, I think, in this culture where we have such a high degree now, if I can put it this way, of sort of cultural self-loathing that we cannot bear to see any representation of historical prejudice that would have existed at the time that the book was written. And I think that says a lot about the state that we're in. And so it's a pretty sad state. We've all become uh, social justice nihilists. We're morally panicked. I mean, we should be able to be robust enough to read a book in its original form, to appreciate it, understand that it was written in a, a historical context, and accept it for what it is. Um, uh, how 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 come we don't understand that we can learn from this? Just because this is our past, that that it, it somehow assumes the way we are. Why do we have to sell, uh, separate that? Why can't we learn how we've evolved and therefore into the future and be better? Well, it's a very good question, and I'm not sure that I can answer that question because I'm not one of the people that's insisting <laughs> that everything be sanitized so that it is so that it, it doesn't um, upset anybody uh, because we're, we, we, we now seem to be um, to be promoting the idea that everybody is so fragile that they can't bear to see something that isn't um, corrected to comply with the moment of the of the day and that that indicates that we're in a in a pretty bad state in our society we we have become um we we are starting to reject our own history and legitimacy uh and you used Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead. You use the term morally paranoid. Uh, why are we morally paranoid? You can go to various parts of Europe. Um, they're not celebrating their history, but they're certainly being very open and honest about it. Yes. Well, there's a long story here, and I think it goes like this. I'll try and make it short. There has been, over a very long period of time, a a kind of program or assault to, to, to change the way that institutions operate. If you look at our various public and private institutions today, for the most part, they now stand against and even subvert the endeavors and values they once existed to pursue. So, for example, if you go to a university today, a university, instead of being the place where speech is most open and most free, it's the place where you have to watch your language the most carefully. Uh, mm. Large corporations, you know, once, to be, once thought to be champions of capitalism, if you now look at the websites of any big corporation, you'll probably see in some kind of way some denouncement of capitalism and, and, and embrace of the idea that the job of business is to seek out social good and so on and so forth. All the way down the line with our institutions, the, the, the thing has flipped. And our society 
does not now ride on the principles upon which we think it was based. Those principles are being rejected. And part of the sanitization of our literature is is part and parcel of that whole process. Um, have we learned anything coming out of a global pandemic? Has this just heightened this divisity, uh, divisivity, uh, uh, divisiveness that we're seeing now? COVID, in a sense, was was the COVID not not COVID the the, the virus, but the COVID measures, the COVID regime, if I can put it that way, in a sense, was was the triumph of a certain way of thinking. It was the triumph of the idea that government is supposed to be there to manage society and to keep everybody safe. And that's why it went so far off the rails. In a way, the COVID debacle was a manifestation of all the things that are reflected in in you know our sanitization of, of literature and so on. It's all part of a piece. And COVID, I think, was one of the most extreme pieces that we've seen so far. Why is, uh, in your mind, society so divided? Why are, why is it so divisive? It seems it's on, you're either extreme this side or that side, the center, where we meet, where we agree to disagree has disappeared. Yes, yes, that's, that, that is true. And I, and I think it's part of this, uh, revolution in thinking that has occurred. And for my money, it's a, it's a bad revolution, but that revolution in part is based upon a set of of anti-Western ideas. And this is hard for people to, to swallow because it seems so counterintuitive. But, but part of that program is to reject the ideas that we think are embedded in our culture and embedded in our heads, like rationality, like data, like scientific experimentation, and so on. And the program, the anti-Western program, rejects those things. And so when you try to come together and make sense in the middle, in a rational way, to have a conversation, the very act of doing that is a challenge to the premises of this revolutionary thinking. And so part of the program there is, well, we, we can't have that debate. You can't legitimize the idea of rationality by having a rational debate because that's giving up the, 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 the fight. Bruce, I know you got to run, but we would love to have this conversation again. Bruce Parody with us. He is uh, with the university, or sorry, Queen's University, also the executive director of Rights Probe. Bruce, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we certainly know a lot about uh, inflation and what it's like and prices going uh, up post-pandemic, supply chains, the whole situation and, and where we are, rising interest rates and such. Uh, and it's been tough. It's been tough for people coming out of uh, the global pandemic. And we certainly know with grocery prices have been a hot issue. Well, this, this is going to steam it up a little more. Uh, apparently, Loblaw CEO Galen Weston uh, is uh, going to get a compensation boost as um, – uh, because they had a great year, and we're hearing it's in the area of 55%. To break it all down, what it all means, and um, justified, not the way business is, uh, is it a good look? Marvin Ryder, professor at the Root School of Business, McMaster University, with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great, thank you. Glad to be with you. 
So, Marvin, you know, I, I love a good capitalist. I love the great stories. I like the idea that you can try to make money if you want. But, gee whiz, how is this going to go down with Canadians considering where we are right now? Right. Well, it's not going to go down well. But let me let me back this up just a little bit and say that this isn't actually a problem of Galen Weston's. This is a problem of his board. And I'm not sure I even should call it a problem. But what a board will do, because it sets policy at the highest of all levels, it will say something like, here is our pay philosophy. So, for instance, at McMaster, we don't set out to pay the very best salaries in the world, but we don't want to pay the poorest salaries in the world. So we'll say how far along the scale that we want to go. And I think McMaster has adopted what they call a P70 or the 70th percentile. We don't want to be at the top, which would be the 100th, but we don't want to be at the bottom. Now, that's a lovely thing to say out loud, but how do you know you're doing it? So every couple of years, you hire some consultants who check not only your pay policies, but check the pay policies of your competitors. And they'll come back and tell you one of two things. Either, yes, you're spot on, your pay is just perfectly matching your policy, or they'll say, ha, ah, your pay is below where you said it was going to be. You need to make some adjustments. So apparently, at some point in 2022, they, the board of, uh, of the Western area, the Loblaws, those sorts of things, Shoppers Drug Mart, undertook this study. The consultants came back and said, oh, my gosh, you're below where you want to be. And the consultants recommended a pay raise for Galen Weston. Now, we get different numbers because something happened to Galen Weston. He was just chair of the board for a while, and then they moved him and also made him the CEO. So there are parts of his compensation that look like it jumped. But if you take the overall compensation, and I know I know this is still going to make your blood boil, he went from 10 and a half to 11 and three quarters million dollars. He didn't get a 50% pay increase, but he did get $1.25 million. And this, by the way, is all past tense. This happened in 2022. This is not set to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not proposed. The mm. board adopted this. So now that we're looking at it out loud, for sure, the board is guilty of terrible timing. They must have, they should have been aware of what a decision like this would mean at a time of high inflation and people are struggling with, with the grocery prices, what have you. And yet, I guess they felt they had a process. They needed to go through with the process. And so they gave him this pay increase. And now that we see it out loud and in person, boy, it does look a little hard to justify. How do you come to the conclusion, Marvin, if they're that out of touch from a PR perspective and from a customer perspective, that they're not out of touch in other areas? Well, you're absolutely right. Now, now, Scott, you, you probably don't necessarily know this, but McMaster, we have a program called the Director's College in which we're trying to train Canada's next generation of corporate directors. And I even teach in that program. And one of the things I say to directors is that it's very easy to get insulated, that you work with the same kind of people looking at problems and you have to get away from the boardroom and stay in touch with your consumers. Or if this was a hospital, stay in touch with your patients or the doctors, the nurses. The board can't afford to become disconnected. But that seems to be what has happened here that they got so caught up in their process, no one said, wait a minute, let's just take a look around and see if this makes sense given the time that we're in. Uh, why, why is this information public? Because this company is publicly traded. So even though the Weston family owns a big chunk of the stock, mm. 
there are lots of other people who own chunks of the stock and what you pay, not just the CEO, but the CFO, the chief financial officer, the chief operating officer, what have you, your senior uh, team, those are all disclosed and made public. So I think probably we are on the edge of having the annual statements for 2022 released and this information has come out accordingly. By the way, one other little wrinkle, once you move your CEO up and you say, oh, look, we're out of whack by 1.25 million, pretty good chance that you're also going to have to move up the salary of all those other people who report to him to move, keep everything consistent in your policy. So the one number is eye-watering, but when you put the total compensation across all the senior executives, I'm sure it's much more, uh, probably on the order of five or even $10 million that the whole team got paid. Well, Marvin, it's it's great that the accounting department got its ducks in a row, but however, have just created a dumpster fire for the public relations department. So now what can Loblaw do to fix that? A lot of people are saying, if this guy's getting that kind of dough, what about the frontline worker? How does how does Loblaw get out of this? Yeah, I'm not sure they I'm not sure they do. Uh, my if I was on the board, if I was chair of that board and I was forced to stand in front of a camera and justify it. I would remind people that Loblaw, Shoppers, Drug Mart, all that together is a 43 billion, that's with a B, $43 billion company. And when they were comparing it, they were comparing to other people who run those sizes of companies. Uh, so if you look at bank presidents, what have you, Galen's pay is not out of whack with what we pay them. Now, you know, I would have argued maybe there would have been some deferred compensation or non-monetary compensation, or I could have said to Galen, Look, you know, our, our, our research says it's out of whack, but this is not the time to do it. Having said that to you, I can give you the counter argument. Well, when is a good time to yeah. get anybody a $1.25 million raise? <laughs> I, you know, even if things were flowing milk, honey, and we were happiness everywhere, I think we'd still, our eyes would water at a $1.25 million pay raise. One other quick note, Scott, I always find it fascinating. We get really upset with CEO pay, and yet, some football player or some hockey player signs a contract and they get paid $15 million a year. No one ever seems to bat an eye at that. And I could argue that a CEO is far more consequential to the world around us than what a hockey player is. Good point. Marvin Ryder, professor at DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. I will. Thank you. Happy Easter. All right. Uh, the city open, wide open for business. Uh, well, not really, uh, but a lot of it is. Uh, just, you know, make sure you time your um, your banking if you have to go in and perhaps your alcohol purchases and stuff like that, government, uh, business and such. Uh, but other than that, it's going to be a beauty weekend in the hammer if you're uh, in and out and about. Good time to discover with the nice weather we're going to be having uh, some of the great areas in our city, including the Concession Street BIA. Uh, Alexis Chavez is with us, Executive Director of the Concession Street BIA, and with us now. Alexa, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. So, Alexa, tell everybody what, what encompasses the uh, Concession Street BIA, the area that you're within. So, the Concession Street BIA, it's a commercial district on the Hamilton Mountain. Um, we've got lots of local businesses, little shops, restaurants, um, lots of services. Um, there, and there's the Sam Lawrence Park around the area. Um, we've, uh, there's lots to see and do on, on Concession Street. All right, before we get to that, let's talk about what you've got planned this weekend. What's going on? 
Um, so this weekend we have our bunny hop and shop um, on Saturday, April 8th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. There's uh, We're doing a color contest to win a handful of private prizes from lots of local businesses. We have gift certificates and uh, gift baskets with lots of goodies in them. Uh, you can visit uh, concessionstreet.ca slash bunnyhopshop for the details on how to enter. Um, we'll also be getting a visit from the Easter Bunny themselves. Um, and many of our shops uh, will be open this weekend and have special Easter promotions or menu items. There's so much to do on the street. Um, we have uh, dozens of murals in the area. And you can follow, you can do like a self-guided mural tour. Um, that's also on our website, um, concessionstreet.ca slash murals. We also have a black history audio tour um, in the area. That's again, also on our website. Um, you can see that at the same link. Um, and uh, yeah, there's lots to do on the street. We've got so many shops, a lot of great food spots. A lot of them have uh special mini egg uh, menu items and they all look really really delicious there's lattes and donuts and muffins and lots of fun stuff so obviously post-pandemic people now coming out uh, about uh, rediscovering their hoods and such and obviously during the pandemic uh, a big move to shop local support local merchants retailers and such and same hand we've seen a lot of changes in hamilton all over in all aspects of the city all, all points of the city how how has uh, the concessions how has concession street and the concession street bia changed over the last few years how what are you seeing and, and what are you looking at for the future? Um, we've seen we've seen a big change over the last few years. Um, you know, a lot of our some of our events went virtual during the pandemic, um, and last year was the first year that we got to really bring those back in person. And uh, it's it's been the support from the local community has been fantastic, um, and just Hamilton overall. People want to get out; they want to see what's going on. Um, and we've noticed a, a shift in, in, we have a lot of new restaurants, a lot of new shops coming. And it's, we've seen a, almost like a, a bit of a turnover, but people want to be in Concession Street. They want to visit, they want to shop, they want to be here. And it's, it's really a great place. And the pandemic really kind of set us back a bit, you know, well, everybody, but just seeing the community come back even stronger. Um, and, you know, I've had so many people reaching out going, what's going on? What are, what are, what events are happening? All the, are the events all happening this year? And they are, and we're, we're doing everything. Uh, and we're even adding more to our programming. We want to, you know, get people out and, and, you know, supporting local businesses and still having, you know, a fun community, uh, togetherness right you know you bring up a valid uh, point alexa and that's community and you know hamilton isn't really a big city it's a series of smaller communities and now when we've seen over the last 10 15 years all of those communities flourish uh, amongst themselves help each other and such and grow and add to the city and as new residents and such are, are moving in they're they're discovering what is around them how important is it that the residents uh in engage their area their own their own BIA, their own area, as well as everything else that, that goes on in the city has to offer. Yeah, it's it's so important. And, you know, Concession Street, we're really lucky that I see it 
uh, every day. You know, people, they've lived in the area their whole lives and their kids live in the area now. And mm-hmm. people, they have such a love and passion for this, for this street and community. But we also have a lot of people coming from out of Hamilton, from other parts of Hamilton and, and newcomers. And you see so many people, they want to know what's going on in their community. And so many people reach out and, you know, asking for resources, asking, you know, where can I go find, you know, this kind of store, that kind of store. And it's so amazing to see. And all we have to do is just, we're trying really hard to even still encourage more people to just be active and, and take part in what's happening in, in your own front yard, in your own backyard, just down the street from you. And it, it builds a community and a neighbor, like a neighborly sense, like everyone knows everyone, you know, if you need a hand, you know, the community's there. And I see it all the time, like, even with such a big city that Hamilton is, so many people, there's so many connections. And That's what it's all about. We already, we already know somebody, we already have a mutual yeah. acquaintance. And it's so nice to see, and people just, they really want to, you know, take part in, in their community and be a part of it. And it's it's nice to see, and that's what we're all about, and... It's just encouraging people to, to look what's right next to you, what's right down your street, you know, and that's, that's what this is all about, really. Alexa Chavez with us, Executive Director, Concession Street BIA. They are out and about this weekend. Going to be a great one in the hammer. Get out and explore your city. Alexa, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you so much, Scott. You have a great day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Despite a sizable drop in home prices over the last year and interest rates going up and such, it's still impossible for everybody, uh, anybody rather, to buy a home, especially those young people who are trying to get into the market. And uh, it is sad. It is sad to see. And, and it's it's sad to hear this uh, information coming out of Ipsos that says that some 63% of Canadians who don't have a home have given up ever owning one. According to the results of an Ipsos poll conducted for Global, uh, published on Wednesday, uh, that figure similar to a poll conducted earlier uh, this year, which is, you know, it's, it's really... It's sad because home ownership was kind of the one thing that Canadians could do, uh, save up for, buy, and, and, and build personal wealth. I mean, it was your estate, your, where you raised your family, uh, and your kids, and you had your backyard barbecues and such. So to hear this, it's just, um, it's sad. And it reminds me of, you know, touring Europe and, and houses of people that all look the same, but they're all paying rent and nobody owns anything. Is this where we've come? Uh, let's bring in Sean Simpson, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs, and with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Sean, this must be, I don't know, maybe because I'm an older, uh, middle-aged guy, sort of, uh, that, you know, th- this seems sad. But th- this is an awful uh, large segment of the population who have said, nope, this is not going to happen for me. Not that they don't want it, but that it's not going to happen for them. Yeah, gone are the days where a a household could buy a home on a single income with three or four kids, uh, you know, in the household. Uh, And uh, a lot of people are frustrated that even with two incomes or more, maybe no kids, they still can't afford to buy a home. Hmm. There is a a growing belief in this country that owning a home is now only for the rich. And uh, even those who do own a home, I think, uh, reflect 
uh, on their good fortune and say, I wouldn't be able to buy this house if I didn't yeah. already own it. So yeah. something is out of kilter. Um, and uh, even though the, the dream of home ownership is, is alive and people still want to buy a, uh, buy a home and believe it's a solid investment, those who are right now renting, uh, a majority of them are, are throwing in the white towel and, and saying, I, I'm giving up. It just seems so far out of reach at this point. And, and Sean, I know there are various factors for this, especially now coming out of a pandemic, the issues that we're in, interest rates, what have you. But again, with the exception of the pandemic, those have, have always been issues during society, uh, throughout society. I remember in the eighties when interest rates were, you know, up around 19 and 20% and such. It, it seems, and, and I keep coming back to, and, and, you know, again, this is probably outside your wheelhouse, but from the research that you've done, it, this all seems to be due to poor planning for the last 10, 20, 30 years, poor planning and supply, because those other things, whether it's world events or interest rates, that always happens. But for some reason, we didn't see this coming. And now we're stuck, you know, everybody's build, 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 no matter what party you're from. Yeah, that's right. I mean, decades ago, you could uh, buy a home for two to three times a household's income. Good luck now, particularly in places like Toronto and, and Vancouver. It's more like 10 times the average income. Um, and the reason that we've, be, we've got so out of whack here in terms of supply and demand, as you say, is predominantly on the supply issue. We just simply have not built enough homes in this country uh, to keep up with the demand of the people who want to own a home. And, you know, we, we have the immigration taps on, rightly so. We would, we would decline as a population if we didn't have immigration. But our new Canadians also need a place to live. So we're, we're just not building enough. And where supply is tight and demand is high, that means that prices are going to keep rising. And, and even though governments are, I call it tinkering in the margins, you know, on, on demand with new taxes or new incentives to help first time home buyers, et cetera, they're not, um, doing what really needs to be done, which is addressing the, the supply issue and the fact that there just simply aren't enough places for people to live. And you know what's frustrating about this too, Sean, is that again, you know, how do we fix decades and decades of poor planning we build and prepare for the future? So it seems sad that these people have given up and, and, and sadly enough, maybe the next 10 years for them, I guess that's what they're assuming. They're right. But it's not, it's something that will swing back. Will it not? I mean, it's, it's like these people have given up hope and, and I feel like saying, don't give up hope. It is there. It is coming. Is that, naive? Well, without government action, it, it might be. Um, only 27% of uh, Canadians believe the federal government is doing enough to address the housing affordability issue in Canada. It's not just the federal government. In fact, the provincial government and municipalities have just as much, if not a greater role yeah. in, in addressing uh, affordability. What's remarkable about this, this notion of giving up is it's unchanged since last year. And that is despite the fact that housing prices have come down, interest rates appear to have leveled um, leveled off, uh, and we're a year later in terms of things that maybe governments could be that could have been doing or building more, and attitudes are not changed. So even though the conditions 
you know, on a kind of macro sense may in fact be improving for some, uh, there doesn't seem to be an appreciation uh, among renters that things get easier. Why? Because their rents are going up. And who can afford to put money away from a down payment when rents are, are going up by, you know, 10% or more in, in many markets across the country? Who, who, do they, who does the public blame for this? How do they, how do they justify it all? Well, I think it's a pox on all your houses. Uh, you know, it's it's every level of government, it's yeah. things that are also out of our control. The the economy, it's it's you know people profiteering. It's it's all kinds of things, and as a result, there's no easy solution. Uh, the solution is to build more homes. That isn't as easy as it sounds, and quite frankly, yeah. that takes ten years to plan yeah. and do it before the new stock inventory becomes available. Uh, do people realize, you know, a lot of people are saying the federal government, you got to get the federal government to do And, you know, I'm the first one to jump on the federal government, believe me. But it seems that a lot of this logjam, and uh, from what I'm hearing, the majority of it is at the municipal level. It's municipalities that aren't moving on things. And then they scream and yell when all of a sudden there's chatter of nibbling away at the green belt. Well, unleash what you have. And the municipalities seem to be the ones really dragging their feet here. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, it's the municipalities that control zoning. So just for an example, yep. um, uh, oftentimes when you're in downtown cores and then you walk out of the downtown core, it's immediately into single-family detached homes. There's no kind of gradual um, um, uh, change from high-rise to, to, to low-rise. Um, it's municipalities that control that zoning. The issue is that as soon as you start mucking around with people's suburban homes, the, you get a great sense of nimbyism, uh, not in my backyard, and there's pushback. And when there's pushback on municipal councillors, uh, they want to appease people so they can get reelected. So it's very difficult to have that sort of bold leadership needed in order to... Well, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head there, Sean. There's too much emphasis. Everybody thinks that, oh, all we have to do is fill in the cities and it'll solve the problem. That's that's part of the issue, but that's not all of it. And a lot of these communities were already designed not for these high-density areas. It's even just when you build new communities, build smart communities, build them smarter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, all of that takes uh, planning, time, energy, money, all of those things, and and um, good relationships with the private sector who's doing a lot of the building, right? But uh, yeah. seeing that organizations and governments just aren't cooperating very well with each other and then we're stuck where we're stuck sean simpson with his vp of ipsos public affairs and i'm probably asking him more than uh he's qualified to answer but 63 percent of canadians who don't own a home have given up ever doing so sean fascinating stuff as always thanks for the time be well my pleasure scott thompson isn't satisfied with an answer he'll delve into the issue until he is you're listening to hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 chml We've uh, uh, just recently been sort of this news has leaked. It's come across as a news story. And, you know, here it is Thursday heading into a long weekend, four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, this comes out and basically it's the rules of engagement for David Johnston, who is heading up the whatever it is into uh, interference uh, election, alleged election interference from the Chinese Communist Party. And here we are on a Friday thinking, ah, well, that's it. Nobody's going to think about this by the time Monday. Tuesday rolls around, but we've got Duff Conacher here, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's with us now. Duff, uh, thanks for taking the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're well. Yes, hope you are as well. 
Thanks, Duff. So your thoughts on this coming out on a fr- on a Thursday? Normally these things are late Friday. Same sort of thing, heading into a long weekend. Why do this now? Uh, what are your thoughts on the rules of engagement for David Johnston? Uh, well, actually, it was post. It was a uh, order in council, meaning a cabinet order that was posted yesterday. So the news is just uh, we're just getting it now. Yes, yeah. yeah. as reporters spot it. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, not much different than what's been released before. Um, the uh, one thing that uh, we have learned uh, that is new is uh, with regard to uh, how much he's being paid, which is a, a per diem. So he's not going to be working full time, but every day he works, it'll be between $1,400 and $1,600 a day. And otherwise, it's pretty much similar to what was released on March 15th, um, setting out his his actual mandate. It's just putting it into an actual order, which will give him the power to look at documents. So uh, at the end of the day, will we know who knew what and when, um, as opposed to just um, what we should be doing and how we prepare uh, to to fight off election interference? Will we actually find out when the prime minister's office got all of this information and all those other questions that, that seem to be, um, uh, you know, uh, distracted against? Uh, we should be able to get this. Um, and uh, it's part of his mandate to look at uh, what the prime minister did with the information given to him. And and so it, it should uh, come out as, as part of um, what, uh, what he looks at. He has the power under this order in council to examine any document that he wants to. Um, so there's nothing that the uh, the governments uh, 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 should be able to hide from him or the spy agencies. And uh, as I said, part of the mandate is what steps were taken by the prime minister and his office, other ministers in their offices, to defend against or otherwise deal with foreign interference in electoral processes. That's a direct quote. Uh, and that it will include, of course, um, when they received information, what did they do with it? And when did they receive it, et cetera? And we should know by early, before the end of all of this concludes, we should know in mid-May, late May, whether we uh, or he decides to call an actual public inquiry. If he calls a public inquiry, is he out of it? Is that is his job over now? Or does he continue to investigate and a public inquiry does its thing? Um, the prime minister could try and make him the inquiry commissioner. Uh, well, will that solve the problem? Would that solve the problem, Duff? If that's if okay, there's going to be a public inquiry now. He's our man. How will we react to that? Uh, he shouldn't be doing the job he's doing now. So he shouldn't be doing yeah, the commis- yeah. a commissioner job. He's a friend of the prime minister, and uh, prime minister violated the conflict of interest act by appointing him. He's handed a government contract to a friend. For fourteen hundred yeah. <laughs> to sixteen hundred dollars a day, it's no different than what Mary Ng did, uh, a cabinet minister who handed a contract to a friend for some advice. This is for advice. He's uh, he's being appointed as a special advisor, and he is in a conflict of interest himself because he's a friend of the prime minister. And the conflict of interest act says you're not allowed to take part in decisions when you have the opportunity to further the interests of a friend. They're both friends. 
So Trudeau violated the Conflict of Interest Act by appointing him, and David Johnson, if uh, he does anything, is violating the Conflict of Interest Act as well because he's examining his friend, the Prime Minister's actions. It's just a layer cake of conflicts of interest. It's unbelievable. And guess who's enforcing the Conflict of Interest Act right now? The sister-in-law of Dominic LeBlanc, who's an old, old friend of Trudeau's. And... And uh, also a cabinet minister. Can you see just a layer cake of conflict of interest after conflict of interest after conflict of interest? It's ridiculously bad. And I can't believe Trudeau really thinks that he can get away with this stuff. Do you think if, in fact, uh, David Johnston says, okay, there's a need in May, there's a need for a public inquiry, uh, and obviously there's a public inquiry, I can't be a part of it. Would that, is that a possibility? He should say it right now. Hmm. He should quit. If he has integrity, he'll quit right now and say, I never should have accepted this. The prime minister never should have offered it to me. We are family friends. It's inappropriate for me to be examining a friend's action. This is by, you know, David Johnson wrote a book called Trust. Mm, <laughs> he must mm. get this. If you read the book, he says this kind of thing over and over again. Duff uh, Conniger with us. Look into friends. So it's it, he should quit now. Call it. Say an inquiry is needed, and say that the inquiry commissioners need to be chosen by all party leaders. Cannot be chosen by one party leader, especially not the prime minister, whose actions will be examined by the inquiry. Duff Conniger, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Interesting article in the Toronto Star today or the other day. And, uh, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. But, boy, when you think about it, it is true. The headline is dithering Ontario liberals verging on irrelevance. Ontario liberals appear to believe that it's okay. They will be okay once a new leader is chosen, regardless of the timing. Such thinking is delusional, uh, says uh, Bob Hepper in the Star Columnist. To talk more about all of this. Peter Grant is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, and is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you're well, too. Thanks, Peter. Your thoughts about where the Ontario Liberal Party finds itself? Now, it seems that um, the NDP firmly entrenched as the official opposition now with a new leader and such certainly seems to have her feet. Uh, but the Liberals searching for a new leader and, and um, in, you know, as far as official party status and such, that hasn't been the case for the last couple of elections. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I really can't understand why they're being so slow in trying to choose a new leader. I mean, we did see when the NDP was leaderless, uh, you know, the Liberals, despite not having party status, were doing better in the polls than the Ontario NDP. But as soon as Merritt Stiles is there and you have a point of focus for the NDP, we've seen in the latest uh, polls, you know, that she's up now well above the Liberals. And so uh, it's really hard to raise money if you're a political party. It's really hard to get people to pay attention to you when you don't have a leader. I think the Liberals could have learned from the NDP after they got rid of uh, Tom Mulcair and took forever to choose an alternative uh, or a new leader, uh, you know, to see what happens. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, here we are almost a year past the last election, a few weeks past a big and successful convention, uh, you know, where they elected a new executive to come up with rules and still no whiff of a date, uh, let alone a set of rules for the uh, leadership choice and selection. Do you think it's because they're having a hard time finding someone to lead the party who, well, I'll leave it at that? Well, I mean, there's no shortage of people who've come forward and said they're, you know, looking to looking to run. 
but it does seem that uh, there are people, uh, you know, at the center of that party, some gatekeepers who feel that the, the names aren't good enough, even if they were people who were good enough to be cabinet ministers in, in Kathleen Wynne or uh, Dalton McGuinty's government. So, uh, yeah, I think there is there is a push to maybe wait to see if they can get Bonnie Crombie, uh, uh, who is deemed to be a political ace uh, as mayor of Mississauga or, you know, some other political ace. But you know, in the interim, they're losing people like Bitsy Hunter to the Toronto uh, mayor's race. Uh, so it's, you know, mm. it's not clear to me uh, that waiting is necessarily going to produce uh, a stronger crop of candidates, particularly if when waiting, uh, the party's, you know, popularity goes down. Could a great leader like a Bonnie Crombie uh, save this party or should they be working on the policy or does that depend on the leader? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I think Bonnie Crombie presumably has been a successful mayor of Mississauga. I'm not sure if have really seen whether she'll be a, a great a great leader. You know, it's easy to right. put your faith and hopes in, in people and, you know, just see the upside of that. But I think for the Liberal Party, choosing a leader will be pretty crucial in terms of setting out how are they going to fight the next election. It's a party that, you know, has held very different positions, you know, say under Dalton McGuinty in 2003, uh, was very close to the positions of the outgoing uh, Harris Conservative government. Uh, by the end with Kathleen Wynne, they were really hunting in, in the space of the NDP. And so choosing the leader, I think, will be pretty crucial in terms of you know figuring out, well, what is the offer that's going to be made to Ontarians in the next provincial election? What what would they promise to, to do differently? And I think within that party, there's such a huge range of, of views that you need a leader to begin to, to set that direction. Uh, can they come back or do they need a change of brand? Like they're looking in some other provinces of just getting rid of the liberal name and rebranding um, the, the party. Yeah, maybe they could call themselves Winterio or something. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not, uh, you know, branding, you know, can be done within the name. And I think, you know, the choice of leader will probably you know, play part of the role. Uh, yeah. Can they come back? I mean, if we were to ask Ontarians, do you think of yourself as, you know, conservative or liberal or NDP or green, you know, people would probably answer liberal, you know, most or at least close to the level of the conservatives. Um, but, you know, they aren't voting for that Ontario Liberal Party. So there is a space to come back if you have a, a leader and a team and a campaign that reminds those people to vote for the liberals. But in the longer run, there may be a bit of a decline if if they aren't able to reach those people. I mean, we've seen in recent polls, for instance, uh, people under 35 and especially women under 35 who were long time, you know, major constituency of the Liberal Party are seeing themselves more as new Democrats now. And so, uh, you know, over time, if you aren't able to really be out there convincing people, you do lose some of that brand identification that has historically uh, really served the Liberals well in Ontario politics. You bring up you bring up a great point, Peter. My next question: Have the NDP taken over the left? Have they now rega- Have they gained that position? And it's up to uh, the Liberals to to regain it back. Uh, is that the go to left now? Well, I mean, to me, the place for the Liberals is actually much more. Uh, you know, if you're going to try and win back the seats they need to win in the outskirts of Toronto, I don't think being the party of the left is the way you do it. I think mm-hmm. probably Dalton McGuinty's strategy, uh, you know, was was a better one. Um, but yeah, I think the NDP is at a moment where you know they have a new leader who may be able to connect with the suburban voter in a way that Andrea Horvath wasn't able to. So I don't think they've actually achieved that yet. And if I think if we looked at uh, polling in, in the outskirts of Toronto or in the suburbs where the NDP would have to win if they wish to replace the Conservatives, 
they're probably still a, a third place uh, proposal. But you know, the, the the way is much more open for them, and it's possible with a new leader that they are able to brand themselves a bit differently in a manner that will appeal uh, to that suburban voter, which in the past might have been more prone to to look to the the, the liberals if they were looking to not vote conservative. Obviously, a strong time in Ontario with uh, McGuinty and Wynne and such, and then obviously a change. A lot of them went to federal politics to help out the federal liberals. Will we see the same thing happen there? Or is, is, this, is this something that's in need of a new identity? Well, I mean, you know, when Trudeau uh, loses, which, you know, may not be that far in the future, there will be a lot of those people who may come back to provincial politics you know, the question is whether they're really in touch with where Ontario is at in 2023 or 2025, 2026, uh, as opposed to 2003. I mean, we saw in the uh, run-up to the last election, all the old uh, hands that were around Del Duca, all people from those McGinty and Wynn campaigns who were coming back to help. But clearly, mm-hmm. they were unable to connect with Ontarians. So, uh, you know, there will be an influx of uh, talent if the Trudeau government falls in Ottawa. That will probably help the organization of the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, but, you know, you still need people who are actually up to date with how Ontarians are living today. And, uh, you know, the, the messages of 2003 or 2012 aren't going to work, uh, you know, 15 years later. Peter Griff with us, professor of political science, McMaster University on the Liberals, the Ontario Liberals and where they find themselves. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. And you too. The government of China this week accusing Canadian MPs of foreign interference after a report. Isn't that kind of funny, considering the election stuff that we're dealing with? Uh, Foreign interference after a report on Taiwan came out. Uh, Obviously, China uh, very concerned of those in the West doing business with Taiwan and where that moves forward. Uh, And obviously, MPs coming up soon uh, visiting China. Where does all that go? Gordon Holden is with this director, Emeritus China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, and with us now. Gordon, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott. It kind of seems odd to hear uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party uh, calling us on interference after what we're going through with election uh, allegations. Um, What about this group of MPs, what they've said about Taiwan and an impending visit? Well, the report is interesting. It's only been out for, I guess, uh, less than a week. Um, Taiwan is a super sensitive subject for uh, for China, I think that I read the report carefully. Some of it, I think, is doable. As you know, I ran our office there earlier in this century. Uh, some of it will be hard to do. Some of it might be impossible to do, but it's set people thinking. I was in China, just got back yesterday, and um, Taiwan always comes up, guaranteed. And uh, this is no exception. I think the rooting about interference and political interference, I think that's a pretty deliberate thing on their part, trying to get at us uh, in the face of the accusations about uh, Chinese misbehavior here in Canada. I think that was no accident that wording came up. Uh, Obviously, you've been there uh, several times. Tone change now. Anything different from your perspective, Gordon? Well, I I took heart from one thing. We'll see how, how this holds. I mean, one of my biggest concerns have been, it's not my concern, Exclusively, of course, it's a Canadian concern, a West concern, is how much assistance is China going to give Russia? And um, when I inquired, um, what about this? 
because that's a deep concern, of course, is China would be able to keep Russia with enough artillery shells, tanks, and and artillery pieces to run a war indefinitely. Uh, the answer is pretty clear. Uh, we are not supplying military supplies to China, to Russia, rather, and we will not supply military supplies to Russia. Now, I don't take anything at face value. I hope that's right. Mm-hmm. That, I did note, was a partial change. On most other stuff, as in particularly U.S.-China relations, I had some in-depth discussions there, but with American scholar was there, a senior American scholar was there as well. I didn't take any, it's all bad news, really, um, in terms of, you know, tit for tat, as you were suggesting in the lead-in. Um, if it's not, there's a new problem seems to come up about every 48 hours or 72 hours in that relationship. And quite frankly, we're at about the same pace. Uh, the French president uh, paying a visit to the Chinese president, trying to calm the waters, uh, and again, on the issue of supplying Russia with arms and such, and, and encouraging them to help out in a peace agreement. It, significance of this, how far does this go? Well, it's interesting. I think the well, the North American relationship, I think, say, Canada-U.S. with China gets worse steadily and has been arguably the worst it's been in decades. In our case, since 1970, we established relations. Europeans, to some extent, are trying to have it both ways. Uh, They are deeply trade dependent, particularly Germany, its auto industry. The French, um, their European economies are are facing some difficulties. I think they'd like to see uh, a, a situation where they can be assist Ukraine mightily. Um, restrain China from helping, but also maintain their trade ties. They have gone along with some of the high-tech embargoes uh, put in place by the Americans under pressure from the Americans. Um, Netherlands and is key in that regard, uh, but they're not dead keen, and there's some backsliding and wavering on their part. Uh, so they they want to, and that's why you see. I think in a, a formal high-level visit with lots of pomp and ceremony from Macron. Uh, the Chinese are really, well, they did learn. They were very unhappy about the state of their relations with Europe when they saw all the European states fall into line against um, against Russia and cooling on China. Uh, they're trying to reverse that trend. It's complicated, but they're in a different place right now, I'd argue, than Canada and the United States. Uh, you bring up a valid point. I mean, obviously, um, uh, the reputation of China has fallen a lot in the last several years. Um, why not use this as an opportunity to regain that goodwill in the world and act as peacemaker in all of this? Because at, at what point is, is there still an advantage to just keeping the West and Russia going at each other? I mean, sooner or later, uh, where does any of this go? So isn't it in China's best interest to, you know, what we could actually reverse the terrible reputation that we've now created for ourselves by doing this because there's really other than getting cheap energy from russia what's in it for china china's the land of real politic in many ways and uh well they're not about to make changes in internal situations xinjiang human rights etc they have a great much greater flexibility uh when it comes to foreign affairs after all i mean Mao Zedong himself cutting deals with Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, one of the most militant anti-communists in U.S. history, uh, was prepared to sit down. And Mao, constantly railing against the U.S. imperialism, was prepared to cut deals. And I think there is a basis for a deal here. The problem right now is that uh, if you look at that map, 
that vast expanse of Russia is right on China's northern border. And one of their great fears, I think, is they're going to have a to have a regime that would be militarily aligned with the West, like as in NATO. But I agree with you, except for cheap energy, there's lots of downside risks for them right now. And I don't think when I complained about the loose talk out of Moscow on on um, on nuclear weapons, uh, I saw nodding um, uh, amongst the, the Chinese. And so I, I think they see it as a dangerous thing. I don't think they intended or wanted uh, Russia to go as far as it did, despite all that encouragement it appeared at the time from Xi Jinping. So I, I'd love to see that, quite frankly, um, just in terms of helping Ukraine. If 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 the pressure from China helped bring Russia to a peace table where they're prepared to make big concessions, uh, that would be a good thing. Wouldn't wouldn't solve everybody's concerns about China, but it would go a long way to securing a peace in, in Ukraine, I think. Is Taiwan getting lost in all of this sauce? Um, you know, Biden coming to Canada, talking about uh, taking the Rust Belt, turning it into a chip empire. Obviously, Taiwan, uh, a hotbed of all of this, which is why China is so interested in it, as, re- as well as the West. Um, is this a distraction from all of that? That is the risk. I mean, after all, it was that that Mao deal with um, uh, with um, Nixon that sidelined Taiwan and lost their rec- diplomatic recognition with the West. So that's always a risk for them. And I think they, 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 they sense that. Um, I think, you know, delegation going this week, uh, will be able to give them some face and some succor, but, uh, that gap between them, uh, in terms of the, of the size is not going to shrink. I mean, 60 times the population difference between, the mainland and Taiwan, mm. it's four times for Russia and, and Ukraine. So they, they feel that pressure intensely. And there's such pressure to cut deals with, with China, but it's climate change, economic deals, um, trade arrangements. Um, Taiwan always risks being on their back foot. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science with the University of Alberta. Gordon, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Scott. The same to you and your listeners. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Joining us now, he's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. It's the Scott Radley Show. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am as well as anyone could be on a, well, it's almost a Friday. It's a Thursday. It's calling like it a, Friday. a Friday. Yeah, it's it, like a Friday. So it's great. I'm doing great. Just so you know, it's the Thursday edition of the All Request Friday. That's how I'm positioning it. That, that works well. Yep, that you works You can take well. that. It's the Thursday edition of the Friday Scott. Scott Radley show. How's that? I'll take anytime you can just throw the word Friday in. I'm good with it. <laughs> All right. Here's something and I don't want to end on a low note, but it mm-hmm. won't be because we'll be funny and, and whatever by the end. But this sign that this kind of bothered me. And, you, you know, you're roughly the same age as I am. Um, and we all know that buying a house, what it does, what it does for your family, what it does, it's it's a chance for you to establish some wealth uh, and, and a retirement and what have you. Sixty three percent of those uh, uh, 63% of those who have not bought a home have given up uh, looking for a home, which I just thought was absolutely bizarre. And of course, you know, we know about the interest rates. We know about the price of homes. We know about affordability. We know about the global pandemic. But man, oh man, I remember the 80s with 18% interest rates. There's always been world issues. There's always been conflict. There's always financial problems. Um, to me, 
To me, this is just simply the result of poor planning. Uh, 10, 20, 30 years of not building homes, and we find ourselves where we are. You can blame everybody, everything, the, the whatever situation of the day, but we've all heard that before. This is simply poor planning and the inability to see where the population growth is going and a bunch of environmentalists that thought this could all be solved just by filling up the spaces in the inner city, which is the biggest pile of hogwash in the world. Uh, your thoughts on this? Because again, I think all of this was avoidable. Well, there's a lot of things. We don't have time to go into all of them. About the part about the inner city. Look, there are a lot of people who are very eager to buy a home right downtown by public transit or right by their workplace if they're still working. Because I mean, COVID has really adjusted mm-hmm. the 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 thing here. Because as soon as COVID hit. What was the one thing that we saw enormous amounts of? Everybody seemingly trying to flee density in the downtown for someplace with a little bit of space. They wanted somewhere where they didn't have to be on top of each other. And, you know, that's that. I don't know how you resolve that one now because all the planning still seems to be we are going to build giant condos and apartments and whatever else in high density areas. And I guess the idea is you're going to like it. You may, this may not be exactly what your parents had or what you had growing up, but you're going to like it or you're not going to have a place. And I, you know, will people grow to say, I re, will everybody say I'm happy with this or will it simply make those places that have a backyard so incredibly expensive that nobody can afford them anymore. You know, we have this idea that it's it, it's either you cram everybody up and stack them like cordwood in the inner city, or it's just sprawl, every single house looking the same, as far as the eye can see, like what they used to build in the 1950s, which is the biggest pile of hogwash. I live in a neighborhood that's a little over 20 years old, which was literally a farmer's field when we started. And in that square block, there are big houses, little houses, semis, detached townhouses, uh, there are mid-rise uh, apartments, residential, and it's all joined by beautiful parks and and trails and, and, and all this other crap that's all, and you've got a universal hood that's, it's not just urban sprawl, it's everything. And that's the way they're building new neighborhoods now. So why are we getting, you know, into our heads that, oh, they're building them like the 1950s when it's the, uh, you know, the James Bungalow and then there's 5,000 of them all in a row. They just don't build neighborhoods like that anymore. Well, and there's a second part of this um, that has to be factored in and it's it's it becomes a really delicate thing to talk about because if you talk about it, and I'm talking about immigration, you would immediately, some will immediately say, oh, you're xenophobic. You just want to keep everybody out. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. This country, we've talked about this, Scott, this country has been built on immigrants. There is yep. huge value in bringing in people from other places who bring different ideas and different abilities and all kinds of things. However, I don't know that governments factored in that this last year there was going to be a million new Canadians. That's not, that's not, we're not talking about it being a bad thing because, oh, look, those different people are coming. That's not it at all. It's, that's, so this country only had 
38 or 37 million before last year. So the percentage of people needing new homes or needing homes, that's in, in a country of 37 or 38 million before this, that's a high percentage. And we already didn't have homes. That again, don't interpret that as saying immigration is bad. That's saying where was, as to your point, where was the planning that said, if we're going to invite all these people? Last Scott, last week on my show, we talked to someone Building is bad. Building is bad. Building is bad. But we talked to someone about this on my show. It's not just Canadians, like second or third generation Canadians. We are bringing people, we're inviting people into our country and almost setting them up to fail because many places, many places they are coming from are not as wealthy as we are. They don't come here with the same savings because they can't, because their own country where they've left does not allow those opportunities. And they get here and we've read stories all over the place of, holy cow, I had no idea this place was so expensive. We, I, I'm, I'm not saying if you're poor, you shouldn't come to Canada. I'm not saying none of this. this. This whole thing, as I say, it gets bogged down because anything you say becomes immediately you're anti-immigration. I'm not anti-immigration whatsoever. But the planning in advance of this has been, as you've said, poor. And this is one of the fa- one of the factors, along with many others, that now is leading to what do we do about this? And we simply can't build it fast enough now. We can't catch up. Yeah, it's like you don't do anything for 30 years and it's like, we can't build our way out of this. Well, yes, you can. Just sit back and watch. Anyway, we're out of time. Have yourself a great weekend. Thanks so much for the time, Scott Radley. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Uh, Have yourself a great Easter weekend. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, Scott. Just wanted to call in and give everyone a a nice, big, happy Easter. And uh, tell the kids to be careful about... uh, All the eggs that the Easter Bunny leaves. Double check them. Could be an unfortunate surprise. 